John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 351.EZ1415, certificate number 51283. The Dingo Fence. Now, collectively, we here at Omnibus own two dogs. Yes, we own both of them collectively. Yes. Our names are both on the licenses. No. Do you have a license for the dogs? Do they, do they require a license? You sweet summer child, yes. You got you to gotta license your pets. One more reason I don't have any pets. Your libertarians can't own pets. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm famously a libertarian. All those, those overreaching bureaucrats at King County want to know how many... Dogs and cats I have. Just no, it's not that I'm a, that I am against uh, them needing a license. In fact, I'm for it. It's it's important for a well-regulated uh, uh, American pet industry that there be no law abridging pets, and that's why they should not be licensed, in my opinion. I think they should all require not only a license but a training course. Maybe a yearly refresher, like a continuing legal education, except for pets. Administered by you. Administered according to guidelines set by me. Is it like the president's physical fitness test where you have to, your dogs just have to plank and and stuff? They have to be, you know, your dog has to be able to be in the yard where it lives without barking for an hour, even though like mailmen walk by and there's a thunderstorm, we have, otherwise we have, they go right into the crusher. We have, our dogs are generally pretty well behaved, but we have a neighbor with a very barky dog. Like he'll just sit at our window and watch us. And every time I, you know, I, I even walk down to my car, it'll just bark at me the whole time, even though I'm walking down my own front steps. Oh, that's so wonderful. It's, it's lovely. But, um, but those neighbors, those same neighbors, you know, there was a time when we put our dogs in the backyard for a while and they were running around and barking. And I got some nice text from them like, hey, just wanted to make sure your dogs were okay. I can still hear them barking. Wow. <laughs> they don't hear their own dogs bark. It's actually kind of true. Yeah. Like you do, you do, you do tune them out. And it's my kids. It's super true. And that's why there should be restrictions on owning, owning dogs. All dogs should have to bark through a filter that changes their... Um, their pitch and timbre, you know, kind of a random thing. So the Soviets can't jam it, but also 
you always are aware of it. It should, it should be, you should have an implant, a cochlear implant that makes your own dog's barks twice as loud as they actually are. Uh, yeah. And it that tra- would change the world. And the translates better. it to English. Hey, hey, hey. I'm barking. Hey, hey. I'm barking. I'm barking. Hey, hey. I'm barking. Your dogs, how, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most and one being the least, how wild are your dogs? They are not particularly wild just because they're kind of mind- domesticated to the point of not being able to survive. Yeah. They're just mind your own business kind of dogs. If, you, if you turned them out, how long would they live? I don't know what to say here because they're neither like with people, they're neither aggressive nor obedient. So they, right. they don't particularly care to follow commands from me, but also there's no, not much downside to that because you feed them anyway. Yeah. Well, and they're extremely friendly to others. They, right. they, you know, if a dog growls, they run, they are not troublemakers. But I'm, as far as when you say wild, I guess you mean not fierce. You mean feral. Like if they had to call the wild it out, if they, are they smart enough to figure out how to eat garbage? If they were out in the world. Yeah, I think so. I have enough stories of them walking through the park, just seeing a dead bird and going to town. I have to think that in a universe that provides dead birds, that they would be okay. What if they had to hunt? What if they had to pitch a tent? What if they had to make a a snare to catch rabbits? (laughs) Yeah. Could they do that? They're not survivalists. Could, Could they build a shelter? Your your Audi can build a tent in under five minutes. They I've seen them chase squirrels, but they get immediately confused when the squirrel climbs a tree. Right. You know how you know how Spock notices that Khan is thinking two dimensionally in the Mutara Nebula in Star Trek Two. Yes, you know exactly what I mean. I do. I'm just like absolutely I'm, that moment. I'm riveted. That, that moment is just burned into my mind. That classic film moment we oh, all love. Spock. The dogs think two-dimensionally, and if a, if a squirrel goes up a tree, they will think it disappeared. Yeah. So my guess is they wouldn't get very far chasing squirrels and birds, because as soon as those guys hit the third axis, my dogs are going to starve. They do like to graze. Can dogs survive just on- um, Grass? Grass and bushes? <sighs> I mean, they're omnivores, right? They eat everything. Unlike cats, you can feed a dog I just, anything. I just think nutritionally, they Grapes. will not thrive- don't they eat grass in order to barf or is that cats? I think dogs sometimes eat grass when they like, my dogs just, I think like the water on it, honestly, it's just a fun way to get a drink. They prefer puddles to water That's dishes. so fun. That's what I do. I just go Wee. lick some grass. They, uh, I think dogs maybe when they sense like, uh, when they have an upset stomach, it's not to barf, but I think it's maybe they sense like some nutritional uh, imbalance that'll be addressed by they need their veggies by leafy greens. It's like uh, it's like when I ask my daughter to eat a couple of broccolis, and every once in a while you see you know she starts to the color drains out of her face and she actually is like I do want a broccoli, I do need a vitamin. Oh, she can tell it's the right thing to do. It might be something in you know something na- natural that other sometimes she's she eats vegetables without complaint. I think there's experiments on, you know, if you if you put a baby with a certain kind of um, nutritional imbalance in a high chair and give it a, a bunch of foods like it's going to be the next Dalai Lama, the kid will choose the thing it's low on. Like your body can just tell, um, well, I normally don't like liver, but I'm low on iron, so I'm going to eat that. Yeah, I believe I believe you can smell vitamins. 
Yeah, and not just vitamin. You can smell the vitamin that's right for you. You that's can right. be like, I'm in the mood for some B12 right now. What a great slogan. Smell the vitamin that's right for you. <laughs> now we just have to develop a product. Start a new life <laughs> in the outer worlds or whatever. Um, I, do, uh, I do think of domesticated urban dogs uh, as kind of a pest, like a pest like a locust. In that they they sweep into neighborhoods, they, they eat your crops, they colonize their human hosts. Oh, you know, so, so it's like a, it's more of a, a body snatchers kind. It's of a, a body, body snatchers thing. They convince their human hosts that they are necessary and good. The human host devotes tons of resources, both emotional and and real resources, to sustaining this creature that that um, that does nothing. This is smart because there's no better way to endear yourself to the the masses of people yeah. than to talk about how much you dislike dogs and dog owners. I know this is this everyone is, can tell you're a good-hearted person now. <laughs> this is the equivalent of you uh, ragging on the Toronto Blue Jays, except I'm singling out. What would you say? Forty percent of our listeners right now are have their have their dog wrapped in their arms, going, "Don't let the bad man take." take Even the, the ones dog. that aren't dog owners might enjoy videos of cute dogs. Yeah. Do you enjoy videos of cute dogs? Oh, sure. I mean, the thing is, I love dogs. Do you? Though? I love dogs. I don't like humans, and that's just. I mean, I think that's pretty defensible. How if you had to pick between dogs and humans? I mean, I'm not talking about like what for? to maintain your car, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, like if you were just in general, like, okay, here's 30 dogs, here's 30 humans. No, what, 30 what, what is would a bad I rather number. Be, what would I like to be pulled apart by? <laughs> 30 is a bad number. Here are two dogs, here are two humans. I find humans to be better company than dogs. Even two dogs. And I'm a little suspicious of people who are like, well, of course I have no friends. I have Mr. Fluffy. Yeah, right. They say serial killers love uh, love children and pets no they don't they torment children and pets yeah i guess that's right is that why they like i love having pets because otherwise who would i um oh wait who would i not, dissect in the garage no it's not serial killers it's sociopaths sociopaths oh. get along with children and pets oh interestingly but interestingly I, yeah, <laughs> interestingly i think the dsm-4 has eliminated or dsm-5 has eliminated sociopath as a thing so maybe they should basically eliminate any diagnosis once the internet finds out about it. There's a there's as soon as the internet is like, oh, your mom's a classic narcissist. I can t- really. I just I just said one sentence. Are you really? Can you diagnose her? It's all gone. Uh, I think that yes, yeah, socio sociopathology now is also a spectrum. So there's no. So we're all just a tiny bit sociopath. A little bit, as you'll notice by going on our Facebook page. Now the scale of gender is named. The spectrum of gender is named for Kinsey. Right. Uh, wh- who should the specter of sociopathy be named for? Like, Bundy? So- no, but he's also a serial killer. So- well, why would you name it after the, the most sociopath? You should name it after an average, a person who's an exact, an exact five on the sociopath scale. Uh, my ex-girlfriend? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just name her now, and now we'll know what to call the spectrum. <laughs> no, I'm not going to name her. <laughs> uh, I do, I should say, um... I should say to our uh, to people on Facebook that have uh, like ASMR uh, issues that I'm going to say uh, dingo fence a bunch of times on this show. So if if hearing dingo fence if that pleasures you, then here you are. This, this is, is going to be your episode favorite you. entry. But if you don't like hearing the words dingo fence over and over, trigger warning. I don't know what to tell you because it's going to be you know it's going to be a fun episode. You're just going to have to hear dingo fence over and over and over. Uh, there are certainly 
I mean, if we're speaking to the far future, uh, you know, presumably dogs don't even exist. And we have to explain that we took one of the most feared predators of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, the thing that used to eat us out on the Asian steppes. And we were like, well, if we put them inside the tent <laughs> and, get, like, and, get, and maybe cooked their food, uh-huh. maybe they'd be fun and maybe they'd sit on my lap when I'm watching Stranger Things. <laughs> Turns out, yes. Spoilers, they did and would. Yes. It probably took a while. Like, uh, do you think I don't were, think so. You don't think there were a bunch of failed attempts? No, I think that... The, as soon as somebody, as soon as the thought technology existed and the dog came in the tent, came in the yurt, uh, everybody was into it and realized it was advantageous for both parties. Think about in Dances with Wolves, how long it took Kevin Costner to get that gray wolf to eat out of his hands. It's a long montage. It's a long montage, but it's confined to the space of a montage. It's true. It it's, take, it there are several scenes before he gets Mary McConnell teed out of his hand. Yeah. It didn't take him 60 years, in other words. That would be funny if the end of the movie is him in age makeup and the wolf is still like, <laughs> eh, pass. Not really. I like that dead, uh, I want to go eat that dead grouse instead. And I mean, maybe that wolf, maybe that wolf didn't ever cuddle up with him at night, but I, I bet just, it's offspring. I did. just think of how many dogs at the dog park seem like they're clinging to domestication pretty, pretty Tenuously. Yeah. So a bunch of those early attempts must have been on the wrong dog and it, it, it bit somebody's face off. Oh, I'm sure. Well, yeah. I mean, think about how long it took to domesticate cats, which are actually not domesticated at all. It's the cat that's fooling us. Right. The cats domesticated us. Yeah. They yeah. figured out a way to get somebody to change their litter box. Yes. And without changing their behavior at all. Because they gave them crypto techno yes. we all have We all have the virus that the... <laughs> What's it called? The amoeba that makes you like cats. Yeah. What is it? It's it, what, when my uh, when my daughter's mother slash partner was pregnant. She had two totally awful cats, just among the worst, and uh, she had tri- trichnoplasmosis or whatever uh, because she loved these cats. They smelled bad. They hissed at you. They were they were awful. And I said, look, you can't have these cats and a baby in the house at the same time. One of these groups has to go. There can be only one. There cannot be a baby. And did you guys agree it should just be a, um, it's just be a cage match to see who, who wins. My daughter would have killed them if, 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 if she was, if, if, if we gave her six months, right. To, to get her, to get her knife skills. No, fortunately, um, there was a sister-in-law that was a cat lady Mm. And so the terrible cats went to live with the sister. She had already been, her brand had already been colonized yeah. by the amoeba that makes you like cats. And then it took, I don't know, it took probably a year for the, for the, uh, the colonization that had gone on in, um, uh, in my partner's mind to finally wear off. I think your brain regenerates. It, did, uh, it didn't take. It didn't take because now they she just has another a cat. cat. And guess what? It's also a terrible cat. I've known so many great cats. I'm like, I love cats, but somehow these cats. Do you have a preference? Cats or dogs? Between great cats and terrible yeah, cats? Yeah. yeah. I prefer great cats. Uh, I think that's the, like the great cats like lions and tigers. I don't care. Yeah. I, I love the, I love them. I don't, I, I make no distinction between cats and dogs. I prefer friendly, helpful, gentle, loving animals. Of all kinds. To awful animals. And it doesn't matter whether it's a dog or a cat. I will love You'd a loving dog. You'd rather have a friendly boa constrictor. Yes. Than a, than a standoffish uh, 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 Siamese. Yeah. Like a like a mean dog or a yappy dog? No. But a nice dog? 
a friendly dog? We have one super friendly dog and one dog that is very cat-like and really couldn't care less. Yeah. And I like the friendlier one better. Yeah. Everybody yeah. does. She's a little bit, except my wife. Oh, your wife likes the bad one. The, 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 That's the, how they are. The cute, fuzzy one. Yeah, they just want a bad boy. Yeah, they I like guess. a bad boy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a project for her to try to uh-huh. to try to get him to like her. Uh-huh. And it's uh, some days it's working, but we all just like the 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 dumb, lurpy golden retriever. We have we have a cat here that uh, every once in a while, it's a house cat, and every once in a while someone is worried that they let the cat out. And because the cat disappears and won't, I mean, the cat never comes. doesn't matter what you do. You can shake your bag of treats at the cat all day. It won't come. Let alone if you say kitty, kitty, cat won't come. I'll come if you say kitty, kitty. <laughs> That's more than information <laughs> than I needed. Like, wow. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> that cat won't come. But every once in a while, somebody's like, the cat must have gotten out. It's not, I haven't seen it in six hours. And every time I do the little fist bump, like, yeah, I hope the cat got out. I hope it gets taken by an owl. But think of all the birds it'll eat before it gets eaten by a sufficiently large bird. That's the thing. This cat is a murder cat. Is that true? Yeah, it's a total murder cat. That's why one of the reasons you can't let it out. It kill it murder all the birds. Until an owl. I mean, I'm sure cats are house cats are probably rounding air compared to all the birds that have been lost to human activities and habitat loss. Yeah, we just had, we had to build all, all those evil developers had to build all those malls in, one, in 80s movies. <laughs> one of the things we do is we promulgate cats, which then kill birds. So it's on us. Yeah, I'm not going to blame the cats. Like before the judgment bar of God, he's not sending all the cats to hell. Or if he does, it'll be for unrelated reasons. I want to know more about this judgment bar. All dogs go to heaven. Yeah. The cartoons tell us so. I heard. And all cats go to hell. Okay. Because of all the songbirds they ate. Jiminy. We all know that it's um, God is on the record as being paying attention to the fall of a sparrow, right? Isn't It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. QED, like what makes a lot of sparrows fall down? House cats. House cats. House cats. Hardly any birds, except for the uh, the uh, the dog that is the subject of our episode today, the mighty dingo. After all of my pro dog talk, you're going to put it in my face by finding one of nature's worst dogs. Wow, that's tough talk. Aren't aren't dingoes mean? Well, dingoes have a PR problem. <laughs> yeah, you eat one baby. And Meryl Streep makes a movie, and then no one will shut up about it. In Australia, so this is another one of the uh, uh, of the episodes in the family of omnibus episodes where we uh, where we tease Australia. I did a last. I did it on Tuesday, and we, the, the show was set in Lancashire. That's the thing. There's always a way to get a, a, a good jab in at the Australians. A totally superfluous, unneeded. We love the Australians. We do. And, you know, when we're not teasing Canadians and Brits and Germans and French and Scandinavians. The Scots and the Welsh. You, last time you said that Italians need to leave your neighborhood. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, a, little, a little harsh. And, and basically all Catholics. Um, wow. But when we're, not, when we're done teasing those groups, we like to tease Australians. Because uh, they can dig it. They have, first of all, they have a good sense of humor. And secondly, they're, they're almost certainly drunk famously and uh and they love podcasts and that will mellow them they do like podcasts they do omnibus has a weirdly weird per capita adoption in australia yes compared to other places you would think it would be more popular well they're they might be jeopardy jeopardy airs in australia 
It's true. And, but, and, and they like you too. But also they like me, yeah. right? I have a lot of Australian fans for some reason. I don't know why. But I love them. So it's it's a mutual admiration society. Not just the Sheilas either. Not just the Sheilas, but the other ones. The the <laughs> the Gilas. The, the what are they called? They're the called, Joeys. They're called Gilas. <laughs> Do you think they're called Joeys? Do you think Australian men are called they're all Joeys? Called Joeys. Even the Chandlers? Hey. The thing about a dingo. Here's the thing about a dingo. The thingo about a dingo. <laughs> The thing, the thing about a dingo is that no one in Australia has ever seen one and quite decide what a dingo is. What? There are a lot of, um, there are a lot of different, uh, what would you say? They're not really theories. They're attitudes about dingoes that. Different that, ways of classifying them? Yeah. That, that, that you, that employ science to um you know that em- that employ science to defend a certain position on dingoes specifically the dingoes role in australia and uh and even unto today there are different camps regarding dingoes this is ecologically for the most part or are we actually talking about taxonomy i don't want to gatekeep who's a dingo and who isn't well that's not my job it extends to the taxonomy um so the dingo the mighty dingo the noble dingo we'll see is a dog um but it's a dog that arrived in australia in about 6500 bc and it was at a, a time when the ocean levels were lower. It was uh, the, easier to get to Australia. There was a land bridge from New Guinea and Southeast Asia. That's right. New Guinea was connected to Australia. And at the time, the um, the domesticated dog of China was effectively a sort of dingo-like dog. And those dogs came with the human beings that emigrated to New Guinea and New Zealand uh, and so they were, dingoes were, they accompanied humans. They were domestic animals. Imagine the dog just sitting there waiting on the New Guinea coast, like Hachiko, waiting patiently for uh, enough glaciers to freeze that he could walk across the, the strait. Imagine the noble dog waiting the, for the glaciers to freeze. Just knowing that uh, what awaited him down there, a beautiful sandy desert full of holes to dig. So the the... The dingo did not wait alone. The dingo came with his Aboriginal. He had been domesticated. He was domesticated. Or they, she. He or she, they were domesticated by humans. Interesting. Humans. They arrived as pets. They arrived as, as companions. Yeah. Do, do they have to quarantine? I mean, taking nope. a dog to Australia is kind of tricky today. No, because you could walk or you could, you could get in a little raft and come from China. And I don't know what the rules are between Australia and China. About importing dogs, but I bet you, yeah, I bet you they're pretty strict. It's a do- it's a dog of East Asian origin that came down with the first humans, and it's a dog. We've talked about what happens to dogs, feral dogs, with dogs that are not br- that are not specifically bred for traits. Yes, um, they all are about the same. They're sort of the color of sand, and these dogs in particular, you know, they're um, they're kind of awesome dogs they have big heads they're um they're very flexible uh, a dingo has wrists what a dingo can turn a dingo can play the piano a dingo can 
there dingoes can actually turn doorknobs. And they, this this is is this more uh I've never asked my dog to turn a doorknob. This would be more uh, flexibility agility than than a yes, a standard dog. Your dogs do not cannot turn their wrists. Huh. Um try, you know, sit sit at home and say, you know, and I don't know how you would get maybe like play um Play, play some jazz. Play, play Pac- be, or play Pac-Man <laughs> against them? No, and just be like, do jazz hands. Come oh, on, and just right. show, show them jazz hands, and if the dogs can do it, you know they're dingoes. I always assume my dogs were choosing not to do jazz hands. Mm. But no. Now you know. It's a, it's a disability that I need to be patient with. So, so dingoes have been in Australia and New Guinea. New Guinea plays a role in this story. Thank goodness. Um, for a long time, since humans have been there. But... They came as domestic dogs and all, and then became wild animals and in fact became Australia's top predator because Australia, as you know, most of the carnivores in Australia were marsupials. Um, and they were no match. Well, they weren't, you know, like a, a Tasman a, wolf can't, can't, uh, a Tasmanian devil, a Tasman wolf, like they're not, or a Tas, Tasman tiger, all the Tasmans. It seems uh, like most of them never made it to mainland Australia. They were just down in Tasmania doing whatever they do. Well, the, <laughs> 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 there are, you know, there are bandicoots. There are a lot of, uh, in fact, I think of the marsupial species in the world, like 70% of them live in Australia. That sounds right. Um, All we have here is opossums, and they're the worst. They're pretty, well, you know, they're bad when they get in the walls, but they're hilarious when you see them walking down the street. Pogo's nice. He's one of the good ones. Uh, But the dingo, so the dingo's been there uh, for a long time, and the dingo has done, like all top predators, right? The dingo does the job of managing really in a way like managing the ecosystem. They're better at it than we are as top predators because they don't typically, your typical uh, mammalian top predator does not then seek to exterminate every other top predator like human beings seem to like to do. That's the one difference between us. What they do. And you know, when a dingo is big enough that it can actually, it manages kangaroo populations. It can, they can kill kangaroos. And so every ecosystem needs a top predator and the dingo f- performed that role in Australia. They do have the, Australia does have the worst apex predator of any continent in that case. Yeah. I mean, right. like Asia's got Bengal tigers and North America has polar bears and Australia has some dingo skulking around. It has like a dog. Yeah, right. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, a pretty do- sad. A, do- <laughs> a dog that got out of its yard, basically. <laughs> there are no, there are no grizzly bears in Australia. Can you imagine? Wow. If only those first Aboriginal visitors had just brought domesticated bears, a few of which then went rogue. Well, as you know, and we've talked about on the show, one of the defining characteristics of Englishmen when they colonize a new territory is they irresponsibly bring dumb animals with them, either to hunt for sport or because they think it's hilarious or because... Because it was in Shakespeare. Because it was in Shakespeare. Even if, if that isn't true, it still is. It still it's too late. Defines the English. It's true to me. Pretty well. And when uh, when Englishmen and women, uh, when the English, the British, 
of any gender. Not or, even or, the English. Or the British. A specter, a spectrum of gender. When the British came to Camden Town, let my people go. No. When the British came to Australia, they brought with them aminals, uh, like the ones they bring everywhere. Rats, pigs, dogs. The rats accidentally. The rats got off the boats via those little ropes. They got off the boats via those little ropes, That's rats, as, the, as the poem says. As the, as the early... As the early British hip-hop sea chanty reminds us. <laughs> uh, and they brought cats. And uh, famously, the British also, I mean, in addition to sheep and goats, uh, they brought rabbits. That didn't go over well, right? And the rabbits became a big problem. I mean, it did go over well, and that was the issue. Well, so the first rabbits came with the first English, because they keep rabbits on their boats to prevent scurvy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to prevent scurvy in the rabbits? <laughs> no, no, no. If you lick a rabbit, it gives you vitamin C. Oh, I don't I know, know if that. you knew that. Yeah. It's well, you're not in the Royal Navy. It has to be like an orange flavored. Uh, maybe if you just, if you, if you squeeze a lime on it and put salt around the edge of the rabbit, if you kiss a rabbit, what it is, is if you lick a rabbit's nose, it prevents scurvy. Mm. Don't dig too deeply into that, but it's fairly common knowledge among, among semen. What do you do during duck season? Uh, well, if you, um, <laughs> pronoun troubles, <laughs> I mean, what happens is if you lick a rabbit's nose, a duck will fly down and give you a hundred dollars. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's Australia. Hey, don't think too much about don't it. Don't blame the messenger. In 1859, a man by the name of Thomas Austin released 24 rabbits in Australia. On purpose? On purpose because he thought, and he actually said I'm an eco-terrorist. No, he said, how much damage can 24 rabbits do? It will, rabbits are amusing and they're good for hunting and they're a little taste of home. Like most Englishmen of his generation, he did not understand sexual reproduction. He Especially had, among. He had never pleased his wife. Rabbits who are famous for liking to do it. Do you think that was a stereotype back then? Maybe it came from what happened in Australia, which is Maybe. that af, uh, in Basically, within 30 years, there were 600 million rabbits in it, Australia. I've noticed it's a naughty way you can get away with a sex joke in post-production code Hollywood movies is to is to have rabbits who are, um, you know, the camera comes back and now there's 50 of them or whatever. Get it? Lol. They're horny. They did horniness. Uh, give me the numbers again. It, it uh, went to, from 24 rabbits in 1859 to 600 million rabbits in 1887. I got to think the right number is not even between those. The right number of rabbits is lower than 24. Right. In Australia, at least. I mean, the, the right number of rabbits here in my neighborhood seems to be m way more than 24. More than there used to be. In there my are rabbits everywhere. There was one in my front yard yesterday. But they're, they're so cute. You remember when rabbits took over uh, Woodland Park? Yeah, it was, it, was, um, it was pet owners letting them go. Yeah. Like this Thomas Austin doofus. Yeah, no, we just have these long... Eared, long, long-eared, long-eyed, flying purple people eaters out here that are rabbits. Basically, they don't fly, and they're not and purple, they're not purple. <laughs> and they don't eat people. But they are rabbits, and they're everywhere. But they don't—they're not burrowing and ruining things like they did in Woodland Park. They—they like—they trash that park. They did. And Green Lake isn't Australia. The Green Lake for a while had signs like "Don't let your rabbit go here." For, <laughs> Such like a weird thing to have like to if tell you were people. tempted, like everybody <laughs> comes down with a jacket full of rabbits and has to walk sadly home. Did you? Um, Don't let your rabbit. Isn't Australia full of venom, venomous, poisonous things? How come all the the jellyfish and the snakes and the spiders aren't? I guess they're too small. 
they're, they're too small and few to take on 600 million rabbits. Uh, well, the jellyfish in particular have a hard time eating rabbits. <laughs> uh, the rabbits don't swim? For a variety of reasons. Don't the rabbits ever take a wrong turn at Albuquerque and, <laughs> and burrow out into the coral sea? <laughs> Uh, that that is a very silly thing to say, but it's not even in the top five silliest things that we've already said in this episode. There are a lot of snakes, venomous snakes, in Australia, but not nearly enough to uh, to keep the rabbit population under control. They should have just brought in more venomous snakes. And in fact, the dingoes aren't able. The dingoes and the red foxes and all of the all of the animals combined are not enough to keep the It's just hitting rabbits. me that the rabbit boom would have led to a dingo boom because now there's a much bigger food source and the dingoes can propagate in peace and happiness. Rabbit boom, dingo boom, whoever is whoever has ASMR and and also has a bingo card. Dingo boom. Are they going to say dingo, dingo boom? boom? Dingo boom. Dingo boom. Dingo boom. The thing about dingoes is that they eat everything, including uh, because they're dogs, right? They eat uh, birds. They eat their own poop. They eat birds, snakes, and airplanes. Um, <laughs> Bruce is not afraid. <laughs> they eat. Uh, they eat crabs, frogs. Uh, dogs eat crabs, fish. Is this a dog at a Vegas buffet? Like there are dogs, there are dingoes that go down into the into the uh, to the water and and grab fish out of the ocean. And they eat Nemo and Dory. They also eat bugs and seeds. They eat. I mean, you know, it's. It's Australia, right? So it's not famous for like yeah, it's a harsh environment. Corn. Uh, it's famous for bugs. They eat what they can get, and in many cases, they'll settle for bugs and seeds. They eat what they they can get, and they don't be upset. Were you and I talking about this? What? This was something that happened in our house. Somebody said, "You get what you get, and you don't get upset." Right. And my kids were furious because the saying should be, "You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit." Yeah, that's a much better. Uh, well, it's, it's an actual rhyme. Instead but, the, of a, but this was not you and me talking about this, right? No, this was my kids that were outraged because they don't say get, they say get, uh-huh. like uh, like they're I- I down the pub, yeah. on a Friday night. Yeah, they get, they don't get, or maybe like they're a, a Western cowpoke. You get what you get, and you don't be upset. But if you get what you get, if you say get, you have to say throw a fit. And these these kids had heard like a teacher say, or no, I think it was one of their friends' parents said. I know what it was. It was a little league game where strike one, <laughs> literally <laughs> uh, strike one off the tee, and uh, they were out of the correct flavor of of uh, of Cheetos or whatever it was. And the mom said, "Hey, you get what you get, and you don't get upset." And my kids were furious. Oh yeah, because it, it clangs against the ear. It doesn't rhyme. No. Anyway, this has little to do with with dingo uh, uh, habitat and diet. Can. Today's show is sponsored by Shopify. Now, I know Shopify is more than a store. I know it connects you with customers. It helps you drive sales, and it helps you manage your day-to-day. But but tell me, what is Shopify? Yeah, it's not just your online storefront. Like, this is all the resources that you need to run a small business. Stuff that, you know, would have been beyond the grasp of a small business. Like explaining to me what my product is? Well, hopefully you already know that. Helping me develop my service. Scaling your business, reaching customers online, because it integrates with social media apps. That's cool. um, Synchronizing online and in-person sales. It's all the the behind-the-scenes stuff, too. That's actually important, online and in-person sales. Detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, uh, and it grows with you no matter what your business is. I mean, am I too small to use Shopify? 
No, it's for upstarts, startups, established businesses alike. These are the kind of tools that used to be only for the big boys, but now businesses of any size can enjoy with Shopify. Can I like integrate it with other apps, third-party stuff? Yes, all that is super easy. They'll let you accept all major payment methods. They integrate with thousands of third-party apps. So no matter what you're doing, on-demand printing, accounting, you want chatbots, like it's all there. So what do I do? If I want to start uh, turning the power of Shopify to benefit me and my products. If you want to join the over 2 million businesses powered by Shopify, whether first sale or full scale, Go to shopify.com slash omnibus, that's all lowercase, omnibus, for a free 14-day trial. Then you'll get full access to the whole Shopify suite of features. So you're saying if I go to Shopify today and type in Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash omnibus lowercase right now, I'll get a free 14-day trial? Yes, start growing your business today with Shopify. Shopify.com slash lowercase omnibus. In addition to rabbits imported into Australia, uh, other things were imported too, uh, uh, in addition to rats and pigs. Um, And one of the main things, like here in the United States, uh, cattle and sheep were brought into Australia, another invasive species. And the thing about the ecosystem of Australia, it varies quite a bit right from the coast to the inside. But what Australia had was, uh, well, in, uh, all these marsupials, but also a lot of other animals that had been um, protected by isolation for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. And the, uh, the English settlers, the British settlers, and, and all of their friends from Ireland and Italy. The British settlers and their wardens. Um, not very good at animal management or ecosystem management. And, uh, the over 29 different species of animals native to Australia have gone extinct. So humans arriving from Europe in Australia was a mass extinction event there. And a lot of that is due to predation from introduced species like rats and, and whatnot, but also um, the ecosystems of Australia are fragile. And in particular, the Great Barrier de- Reef. The Great Barrier Reef, very fragile, also not, uh, in not, great da- grave danger. But not from dingoes. One not, from, not from dingoes, although they do, they're out there waiting around eating fish. Yeah. And jellyfish are out there eating rabbits, which is bad for the reef. But, um, but like, all ecosystems, it is, um, it is a, a there, there's a, a circle of life, right? The, we sow the seed, nature grows the seed, but it's nature, right? So nature sows the seed, hmm. nature grows the seed, nature eats the seed. And when you introduce new animals into that, what happens, Ken? Well, sometimes they thrive too much and they can take over. And other species are at risk. No. Is that close? Interesting theory. Yeah. In fact, um, you can upset the apple cart, upset the balance, and create what's called a trophic cascade, which is- What is that? You know, you take away away a top predator, you introduce a new top predator, and the ecosystem uh, 
becomes imbalanced, and then that imbalance starts to uh, it starts to create a cascading series of of uh, of situations where it, yeah. it, it, it then becomes you know you get explosions of populations of deer because you've taken away the the wolf. You get explosions of rabbits because you've taken away the dingo. And it can go the other way too. Like uh, explosions one, of dingoes. Literally, dingoes can explode. It can go the other way, right? Like maybe this is not a trophic cascade, but you get rid of you know if bug populations decline, it threatens bird populations because what are they going to eat? Exactly. All this stuff goes uphill and downhill. A lot of this was theorized by a by a naturalist called uh, by the name of Aldo Leopold. No, he wasn't. Or Aldo. Aldo Leopold. Let's call him Aldo. Um, he was an American naturalist that kind of popularized the idea of wilderness uh, in the United States. He had been employed as a as a wolf culler, a wolf hunter, according to the sort of Theodore Roosevelt philosophy of nature, that it was something that you managed predators because predators were killing deer, which were game animals and so forth. And we had almost completely eliminated the gray wolf from the United States. And although Leopold was one of the first to recognize that, wait a minute, these predators are noble beasts and they... Well, plus they have a role. Right? And they fulfill a role. And managing ecosystems is much more complex than just eliminating the animals that are killing the sheep. Good job, Aldo. Good job, Aldo. He, um, he remains a hero of mine. But a lot of this... You, is still, you know, really contentious. In fact, the the reintroduction of gray wolves into the United States. Um, but it's not contentious because of the science. It's contentious because of competing interest groups, right? The ranchers don't want the wolves. Uh, ranchers don't want the wolves primarily. That's right. Although, you know, they, the emotional appeal, um, a lot of it is based on whether or not you believe humans are here to conquer and manage the world or whether humans are just another species that are part of a a giant um, living entity of Gaia, Ken. Uh, and if you believe, you know, if you believe that God put us here to to manage the animals and to create an Eden where the, the lion lays down with the lamb – um, I, I think you make a convincing case that, that, uh, gray wolves are incompatible with the sheep farms of Idaho. Yeah. I mean, once you've changed the, it's ecosystem, not a science case. Once you've changed the ecosystem that much, it really becomes just a matter of here are competing interests. What's the least bad way to manage them all. Right. Are there places we can put the wolves where they will thrive and not eat the sheep? We've only just in, just since the 1990s reintroduced gray wolves into Yellowstone and, so the experiment, uh, you know, it's a, it's a experiment on a grand scale. It, it are, are the gray wolves of Yellowstone actually improving the ecosystem writ large there? Um, and I think there are a lot, you know, there's a, it's basically a giant laboratory. Like how is this affecting populations of birds? You know, how is it? You got elk herds and then you got everything downstream. And all the grass that the elk are eating yeah. and all the bugs that live in the grass and so forth. Um, and it's an exciting, uh, you know, it's an exciting experiment and it's being, it's being monitored all around the globe by naturalists and scientists because this is true everywhere. Um, and what do you, 
what is essential to the ecosystem and what is alien to it, uh, it's maybe not as obvious as it seems. Especially in this case where we know that the dingo was you know, fairly recently introduced. So in Australia, uh, cattle ranchers and sheep ranchers are a huge business like they are here in the United States, but an even bigger enterprise. There are uh, cattle stations and sheep stations out in the, in Western Australia that are bigger than a whole US nations. Yeah. You know, um, they're enormous and they have an enormous number of, of livestock and they, in the mid 19th century noticed that, that, you know, their livestock were being decimated by dingo attack. Mm. Now, like a lot of, uh, like a lot of the rhetoric that, you know, or the hyperbole that goes around wolf attacks of livestock here in the United States, those attacks, the, you know, the, the records of those attacks are often wildly inflated or misstated. In the U S of course, we have lots of other top predators that might be killing those sheep, including bears and Cthulhu's and Satanists, Bigfoot, UFOs in Australia. Really, it's only the dingo uh, that you can blame for murdering sheeps. So it's a much better experiment. You can tell right. what the dingo are getting up to. Even cows uh, are just a little too big for a dingo to kill, They're, but they can kill calves. Do they hunt in packs? They do, but not like uh, their their family units are smaller than wolves. It's not that, you know, it's typically like mom, dad, the most recent babies, mm-hmm. like the yearlings. Um, and dingoes are smart. And in Australia, they developed a bad reputation because, uh, because from the standpoint of the European colonist, the way the dingo hunted was regarded as sly and not honorable, <laughs> right? So the dingo didn't stand. That's always a problem, right? Yeah. To put a moral stamp on The dingo animal didn't stand behaviors. there and let you shoot it with a rifle. It's, it's slunk off into the, into the brush. You know, it's a, it has a larger brain than a lot of dogs, but, you know, proportionate to size. Mm-hmm. And they're clever. Um, but the colonists thought that that cleverness, because they were busy killing little sheeps, um, they thought that that was a, that was a sign that they were, uh, the devil's dogs, that they were devil dogs. And so dingo actually, even in Australia today is a slur that ref- that, that people use against one another to mean that they're untrustworthy or, um, you know, undependable or sly, right? Uh, uh, full of guile. We don't really have animal insults like that. You could say a wolf for a womanizer. Well, you could say you're a pig. Yeah, I guess that's You could true. say you're a bird. Would you say someone's a bird? You're such a bird, what, Ken. Is, what does that mean? They like to look at themselves in the mirror. You eat seed and... <laughs> yeah, classic. Get killed by cats. I do eat muesli. Well, so by the mid-19th century, both rabbits and dingoes 
were regarded as big problems for the management of Australian um, land. The rabbits, because they were eating all the grass mm-hmm. that the that your sheeps and cows would w- need to be sustained upon, would sustain themselves with. I don't, I'm keep ending it with, ending sentences with a preposition. With which they could sustain <laughs> themselves, upon which to sustain their lives. And then the dingoes are, of course, culling, you know, well, thousands of animals. Yeah. And so within Australia, there were attempts to eradicate these populations uh, with guns and traps and poisons. But there's so much of Australia, and there were so many, 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 many of these critters that it was very hard to very hard to like, exterminate them or really manage them. I mean, just by numbers. I mean, each if there's 600 million rabbits there, that's, you know, each Australian has to kill, what, 2 million rabbits? There's, what, there's about 300 people there, I think. 300 people in Australia. Yeah. So, yeah, each person has to kill 200,000 rabbits. rabbits. I mean, you just, you'd be very busy. So what they did in a very Australian way, <clears throat> this is, you'll see that this is real Australian. Okay. Uh, they uh, they started building fences to keep the rabbits out and to keep the dingoes out, but not the same fence because you were trying to keep the rabbits out of a different place than you were trying to keep the dingoes. Oh, different parts of the country. Yeah. It's not that they have different technology, anti-rabbit tech or anti-dingo tech. You can build a rabbit fence and then add a dingo fence onto it. You can build a dingo fence and add rabbit fencing to it, but rabbits and dingoes have different fence needs. A rabbit can- Rabbit's smaller, so you got to have chain link or something, right? Right. A dingo can dig. A rabbit can dig. They're both diggers. So, and I think a dingo can only, a dingo has to dig a deeper hole. It has to dig a dingo hole. It's a bigger hole. Whereas a rabbit can dig a rabbit hole and right under the fence. So you got to have fences that go down into the dirt and underground enough and kind of do that thing where they kind of curve under the ground. So the rabbit digs down and then, oh, still fence down here. You can't really keep rabbits out of places. The one thing I've learned from the Trump years is that like this kind of massive infrastructure project is essentially impossible. It's just too big and too expensive. But Australia managed it. Well, the the border between the United States and Mexico is two thousand miles, uh-huh. basically. That they that they're trying to build a rabbit-proof fence uh, along, except it's not for rabbits. And they're not really trying. They're not, re- and it's not it's not a very good. <laughs> it's not going great fence at all. Um, there's a fence between India and Bangladesh. There is that was uh, that's you know, been under construction for a long time, ostensibly to keep the drug trade out or something, but it just seems like a, just, just one in a million racist fences. Is it like a Hindu nationalist thing? It's also almost exactly the same distance as the U.S.-Mexican border, a 2,000-mile fence. Oh, yeah, because it goes all the way. It, it, India surrounds Bangladesh. So it's mm-hmm. essentially the whole land border of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another hilarious fence that I didn't know about until I started researching this show, which is there's a a 1,000-mile uh, fence currently under construction between Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, which appears to just be the product of the Turkmeni president. Like some crazy dictator? Niyazov, right, who felt like he didn't have enough projects that commemorated him. 
And so he was like, wait a minute, what if I built a giant fence you know, along the Uzbeki border. Is there some kind of anti-Uzbek um, uh, jingoism that this feeds into? Almost certainly. So this is his Falklands War? Yeah. It's but a big it, fence with Uzbekistan? But really, it's just like he couldn't build a fence across France because he's not in charge of France, but yeah. he is in charge of Turkmenistan. And so he's he's building um, a giant fence along the border. If I were the Uzbekis, I would love that. Like if my, if my neighbor put up a really nice fence, I'd be like, hey, thanks, buddy. Can I kick in? Uh-huh. <laughs> The Uzbeks are probably delighted that that fewer uh, uh, Turkmenis trouble that will trouble them. I have two neighbors, and I would love it if they would build a dingo fence <laughs> along our borders. You'd, you'd never have to see them again. So, so here we have some some long border fences. U.S. Mexican border, two thousand eighty seven miles. The India Bangladesh barrier is two thousand thirty miles. In Australia, they built a fence. Basically, across Western Australia, from top to bottom. North to south. North to south. That is 2,021 miles long. Also, as long, I mean, almost exactly as long as these other two fences. It seems like a 2,000-mile fence is something that almost every nation wants at some point. It's the perfect length. It either keeps drugs out or it keeps the residents of the southern states out or in Australia's case, the rabbits out. Trump should have tried to buy their fence. The Well, I see the thing is I don't think the rabbit-proof fence of Western Australia would keep Bangladeshis out of New Mexico. Explain, explain why. Is it short? Yeah, it's not. It's made out of wire hmm. and it's uh, the fence posts are local wood, uh, and in places where there's no wood, like iron pipe, but it's not like, am I picturing like a, a a fence height fence? It's a high, it's the height of a fence. This fence. It's like a Like fettuccine based sauce. Like barbed wire out in the, in a U.S. pasture. Right. But it's not like a chain link fence. Like you would see at a military base. It's It's, it's really, it's really a hump, more humble fence. The thing is that a dingo with its doorknob opening wrists can and its slyness can and its slyness right can jump over a rabbit fence. Mm. I mean, even a rabbit can kind of jump over a, a low rabbit fence. So, in order to turn a rabbit fence into a dingo fence, you've got to make it higher. Um, but the the uh, the dingo fence, the great dingo fence, uh, actually predates the rabbit fence of Western Australia. How, how far back are we going? We're setting the Wayback Machine all the way to eight, the 1880s. Mm. The dingoes had been eradicated by uh, poison and hunting in southeast Australia. And that's the area, you know, from Brisbane down s- through Sydney and Melbourne, all the way past Adelaide uh, to basically the middle of big chunk of Australia's population is now, I mean, that's where the population is denser. I guess it makes more sense that they're less dingo troubled. The dingo fence encompasses almost all of New South Wales and Victoria, uh, half of South Australia, parts of Queensland. It's, um, it's an enormous fence. It took them, uh, it took them a long time to build and it is, 3,400, almost 3,500 miles long. 
Uh, to our international listeners, that is 5,600 kilometers long. It's kind of it's kind of keeping Australia's southeastern bulge, what I think of as the butt of Australia. Mm-hmm. Where it's, everybody lives. It's isolating that from the vast deserts and then the southern, western, and northern coasts. And they had already done a good job of eliminating dingoes there. And so they built this fence to keep dingoes from coming back. Just from sea to shining sea. And it, um, I mean, one of my favorite... One of my favorite sentences in uh, in Wikipedia, sometimes these sentences describing Australian geography uh, read like something out of Tolkien. <laughs> and this is, this is the sentence that describes the fence. It goes, from Jimboor on the Darling Downs near Dalby, ending west of Eyre on the cliffs of the Nullarbor Plain above the Great Australian Bight near Nundru. <laughs> I'm just like, whatever that is, I want to go there and I want to fight dragons there. The Darling Downs. The Darling Downs. Uh, so dingo attacks on sheep, of course, were, um, were curtailed because the dingoes were all kept on the other side of the fence. But what that has precipitated, of course, is a, um, is a, a, a trophic cascade, right? The on which side? Well, too many dingoes up top, or kind of on both sides. What what you notice is that north of the fence there are fewer kangaroos because the dingoes are killing kangaroos. Yeah. South of the fence, um, because the dingoes aren't there to control the sheep. Of course, the sheep and cows are denuding the land. Mm. And that is having a disastrous effect on all the other critters. You know, we've already, we've already eliminated, eliminated 29 species in Australia. Uh, and we, we, I mean, you know, you and humans, oh, humans, okay. uh, ha, you know, it's, um, it's creating a, an ecosystem in, in Southern Australia that is, that, that seems to be collapsing because, because that's what happens when you introduce grazing animals from Northern Europe and eliminate all of the- And not enough dingoes to eat them. And there's no, there are no top predators. So within Australia now, there is um, a, a, a kind of an argument raging that's creating a kind of situation like in the United States where you have a federal law and then you have states that have different laws um, that contradict the federal law. I'm aware. <laughs> in- there, there. I guess two schools of thought. Now, one of them is as long as this isn't about pot shops. There, there's, there's two schools of thought. There's people that believe the election of 2020 was stolen, <laughs> and then there are people that support the dingo. One school of thought is that the dingo is a, uh, it is a species of dog native to Australia. That is an essential component in the Australian ecosystem and that it is a specific species separate from the domesticated dog, right. not, not species, but the, the, the initial taxonomy of the dingo was a canis dingo. And then a subsequent taxonomy was that the dingo was kind of reclassified 
as uh, it was reclassified as a Canis lupus dingo. A wolf. Right. Sub, sub, a sub species of wolf. Subspecies of wolf. But then it was reclassified again as a Canis familiaris, which is basically saying it's a, it's a feral dog. And because it came with humans, albeit 8,000 years ago. I mean, 8,000 years is not a lot of time to evolve into a whole new species. Right. It is, um, you know, it's essentially an introduced species. Yeah. By that taxonomy. It's, a, uh, it's an invasive species of its own. And so within Australia, there are various laws either classifying it as a, as a top predator and a necessary component in an ecological restoration of denuded, uh, environment, or it is a, uh, an introduced and, and basically toxic species that is, that has come and, you know, and, and arguably like uh, is responsible, but pre-contact or, you know, pre-European contact even responsible for having eliminated a lot of native species. Yeah. It, it, it drove out the, the Tasman tiger, the Tasman wolf, right, the it, Tasman it, grizzly bear. It, it killed, a, it killed native marsupials and it's part of the, it's part of an ecological destruction. Yeah. What are you trying to restore? Like what's the, uh, it's the illusion that nature has one steady state that if we could just get back to that Edenic perfection. And we now know that that's just an illusion. What appears to be the steady state of nature is constantly changing. And is all these forces working in, you know, in complex relationships at or against each other. So do you want Australia from 8,000 years ago? Do you want Australia from 1800? Yeah. From uh, what, what is that? 200 years ago? Well, so the Australian government classifies um, native species as anything that was in Australia before the year 1400. Huh. So before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And by that metric, the dingo is a native species. Now the capital territory of Australia, um, classifies, and that's, you know, where that's their Washington DC, that's their Washington DC. Um, they classify the dingo as a pest animal. It seems very mild and forgiving. No, it's just a pest. New South Wales, like a mole, calls uh, the dingo is wildlife in New South Wales, but it's there. Uh, there's also in New South Wales uh, an act called the Wild Dog Destruction Act, which classifies dingoes as wild dogs. Now, here's part of the issue: since the introduction of domesticated dogs that have then escaped and co-bred with dingoes, mm -hmm. there are, uh, there's this sense in Australia that there are massive populations of wild dingo dogs, which are neither oh, they, dingoes nor dogs. They've interbred with, with domesticated dogs that have gone feral more recently. Complicating that is the fact that within the Aboriginal language, there were different words for dingoes that lived with the Aborigines and they lived, they, they cohabitated and, and were, um, you know, were helper dogs and, you know, part of Aboriginal communities, sure. but there were also dingoes that did not live with the people and they had different names in Aboriginal language. They were not different dogs because the Aborigines did not breed dingoes. 
they, you know, they weren't like manipulating dingoes. I see. H- house dingoes or camp dingoes is what they were called versus wild dingoes weren't distinct, distinct from one another uh, genetically. But that in- introduced this kind of confusion that there were that there were some kind of, there were dingo dogs and then there were purebred dingoes and that continues within the legislation in Australia like what do we do well we have to treat dingo dogs different dingo dogs are invasive and dingoes are becoming you know pure pure dingoes are losing their they're endangered as opposed to dingo dogs which are proliferating now that's not racial purity laws for your dingoes it's not a hundred percent. True, either when they actually do studies, the number of dingo dog hybrids is actually relatively small. There are lots and lots of pure dingoes still. Um, so in New South Wales, the Wild Dog Destruction Act requires that landowners destroy wild dogs, but um, the dingo is also. It's uh, uh, the pure dingo is uh, people are advocating it be included in the threatened species conservation act. How would it be different than the wild dogs they're trying to destroy? It isn't. Um, in the Northern territories, the dingo is considered protective wildlife. Um, in Queensland, the dingo is, uh, a pest that is of least concern. It's protected in the national parks, but outside that in, on private, like sheep land, yeah. it's a pest. So you can, if in the park, it's wildlife outside of the park, it's pest, which is kind of like what Idaho would like we, us to think of the, of the gray wolf. Are dingo attacks on humans a non-issue? They do not kill a ton of babies. N- no. I mean, I think if you were out in the one famous case, but for the most part, they stay away from people, um, much as wolves do, but maybe even more so. So in Australia now, there are, um, there are a lot in addition to the dingo fence, which is still, uh, which is still maintained there. There's a, you know, a full-time staff of dingo fence maintainers. They, they drive the border fixing fixing the fence although the it's freaking 3500 miles long that's longer than my walk across europe ken i didn't think anything was longer than your walk across europe no it's true it's really long uh, but have they, you ever been tempted to walk across australia just to have a second story it seems like it would be uncomfortable to walk across australia it's either you'd be you, there'd be bugs all over you it'd be really hot and muggy or it'd be really hot and dry but you could say you'd been walkabout yeah, you I can't go walkabout in Bulgaria. The thing about Australians is they don't go walkabout in, in Australia. They go walkabout in, in they Nepal. Buy, they buy big campers and go drive about in <laughs> yeah. Australia. Uh, they also, in Australia, poison dingoes. And in a way, that is the, that's the main way. I mean, they shoot them from helicopters too, but they poison them. And that's the main way that they are controlling dingoes. And all of that brings us here in conclusion back to um, an earlier episode of Omnibus. In researching this, I learned that the rabbit-proof fence of Western Australia was primarily built um, 
like the, the fence builders used camels to, uh, to patrol the line of the rabbit fence. Cause no, cause a horse couldn't do it. You know, the, as they were out there hauling supplies way out into the middle of nowhere to build this rabbit fence. This is mostly during the building of it just to get the equipment out there. They were using, they were using carts pulled by teams of two camels. And I'd never seen camel teams. I'd never seen such a cool thing as, as like a wagon being pulled by two camels. Now, as we talked about on the camel episode, the, uh, at the, at, at the advent of cars and whatnot, the, most of the camels of Australia got turned loose and became an enormous feral camel population that at its, uh, at its height in 2008, there were over 1 million wild camels in Australia that were also, that were inside the dingo fence there was no camel fence the dingoes and the camels were living peacefully together because i don't think a dingo can kill a camel in harmony the car the camel will lay down with the dingo but by 2008 there were one million camels and the estimate was that the that every eight to ten years that population of camels was going to double (laughs) and the camels were a pest because they were, you know, a camel can smell water five miles away. So a camel was tearing up all the toilets of the, of the, uh, you know, the, the cattle stations and whatnot. So the, the, the Australians, in addition to trying to manage the hundreds of millions of rabbits with their rabbit fence and the, the millions of dingoes or the million dingoes that were, and also of course the sheep and cattle. Yeah. Uh, just recently the Australian government has set about to try to cull hundreds of thousands of camels from their, their million camel overpopulation and began a whole enterprise of creating pet food out of camels. They've eliminated, they're down to 300,000 camels now. Oh, They have... They've ground up six hundred. Two thirds of our cam- Australia's camels have turned camels. into dog. Have turned into kibble. What's nuts is that I learned in doing this that the Aborigines learned to love the camel, huh. and there is a whole now subset. This is just in the last hundred plus years. There's a whole culture, a whole like Aborigine camel culture now that also certain. There's a there's a new understanding within Australia that this represents a, a a culture like a cultural encounter that needs to now be kind of preserved because now it's part of Aboriginal heritage. Yeah, right. That that you know there's a they have enough time with camels that uh, that they've made us a, a symbiosis. I guess we talked about this in the Appaloosa entry, but you think of you think of the fauna of an area as a as a fixed point, but. You know, imagine these indigenous populations that have all this mythology based on certain species, and then ten years later, there's all new species. Right. Suddenly, there's suddenly there's no Tasman tigers, but you've got to accommodate. Uh, well, I guess maybe my spirit animal can be. A, what do we got now? These camels. Okay, I guess they're sheep and camels. You've got to change your whole mythology. Well, in 2019, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is not a thing I was aware of, but there is an international union for conservation of nature. Sure. I write a check to the IUCN every Christmas. Decided that 
dingoes were feral dogs. Is that good or bad? Bad. That means you can put them down. That means there's nothing special about them. Now, the dingo has, the dingo's closest relative is a wild dog in Papua New Guinea called the, um, the New Guinea singing dog. Singing. Because it has a particular way of howling and singing. Hello, my sweetie. Hello, my honey. <laughs> and also in New Guinea, the, there is a, there's a real distinction between the wild dogs that live in the mountains and the neighborhood dogs mm-hmm. that are, they're the same dog, but they're, these are. It's a dingo-like distinction. Yeah. These are friendly. These are, these are our neighbor dogs. These are nice dogs. Not like the other dogs. So the controversy is ongoing, and, and as per usual here on Omnibus, we teach the controversy. Is a dingo a native uh, fauna of Australia necessary as a top predator that should be conserved and treated with respect? Or is it a human-introduced feral dog species, invasive, that killed all the, the Tasman tigers and, uh, and should be <laughs> poisoned and shot from helicopters and confined by, or it's actually, the fence doesn't confine the dingoes. The fence <laughs> confines the humans. Well, yeah, exactly. The fence keeps us in. Yeah. I guess the, uh, maybe what you need. Tell me what I need. I mean, making the dingo, making the rabbit proof fence just released a bunch of camels. Maybe you make a camel proof fence, but you bring in. What? Elephants? Well, what? And then the elephants step, step on all the dingoes? I think the natural predator of camels is tigers, right? Is that or true? lions? I mean, what kills a camel? <laughs> it's got to be a tiger. So we need to introduce, first of all, I think Australia would benefit from having an introduction of tigers. Well, yeah. It would just you be know more what? exciting. I want to bring all the animals referenced in Rudyard Kipling and, <laughs> in, and put them in the great state of Montana. That's just, you know, if we're going to be kooks, that's what I want to do. I want to be, be a Kipling kook. I always feel bad when I go to a zoo and somebody's in the wrong ecosystem. You know, somebody's in the wrong climate. The polar bear is too hot. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the tiger's too cold. It's tigers just, can handle cold. It's just a bummer. Yeah, I guess. They go to Siberia. Yeah. What's something that can't handle cold? Camels. Hyenas. Maybe right? maybe camels. Hyenas just complain. They stop laughing even. Uh, tortoises. I bet tortoises do not like yeah, cold, winter. Cold-blooded animals. Anyway, I mean, one thing we've learned is that we should not be making these decisions based on emotional appeals, right? We shouldn't think, which are the good animals and which are the bad animals? We'll draw a circle around them. Uh, well, I think the bad animals are domesticated dogs in the United States, particularly in cities. Well, we're not going to build a fence around each one individually. Around each dog or around each city? I think we should, we should build fences around our cities. Each individual dog should have a fence around it. I guess that is how the suburbs work. I just, I just reinvented the suburbs. I'm Elon Musk. And that concludes the dingo fence. Entry 351.EZ1415, certificate number 51283 in the omnibus. As always, we were products of our time and our social media accounts were at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick. Uh, you could send us email with your complaints about our treatment of Australia to the Omnibus Project at gmail.com, where we would read them if we could understand a thing you were saying, Australians. 
Uh, you could email, you could send us physical items to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I thought maybe I had, I thought I had postcards or something. You thought you had postcards from whom? Someone who had sent them to us. Well, there's a lot of letters there, Ken. It's, oh, wait, those are our show notes that you're yes. sending to fans. We send out show notes to Patreon supporters. We do. Uh, who give at the robot alien something level. Robot alien something level. The robot level. Alien, you get a signed set of show notes from myself and John at the uh, higher, at the, what is it, the washing bear level, I believe. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. can uh, actually submit an idea for an omnibus entry that John and I will take to heart and incorporate into our our lives and religious practice. In fact, today's show about the dingo fence was suggested by Joshua. Thanks, Joshua. Uh, if you have been enjoying the show but are not enjoying these and other fine Patreon benefits, please investigate them at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Look for other Futurelings on the Futurelings groups uh, on Facebook and so forth. And uh, uh, write your congressman about, uh, about anti-camel measures. Reintroduce camels to Yellowstone. Here, here. Right? Yeah. It's about time. They would love the geysers. Camels love geysers. Hot. Yes, it's hot. It's They love water and they love heat. So what would what? they love more than, <laughs> than a geyser? Water. Yeah, that's right. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If it the worst comes soon, we wish you many goods and cheese. And we hope you come see us often. But this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. Providence allows. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.